All right, John chapter 1. John chapter 1, as Dan said, this is where we're going to be for uh, the first message this morning. Yes, there are two. Yay! Come on. John chapter 1 is where we're going to be for the first message this morning. There are two. Here we go. John chapter 1. Let me read some verses here. This is an awesome chapter of Scripture. John 1, the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The uh, title for this series is uh, Latin Post Tenebris Lux, After the Darkness Light. Now for the nation of Israel, they had been waiting for their Messiah. They had been waiting uh, really for centuries since the promise had been made. It meant that the long wait for her Messiah would end and they would see their salvation after the darkness of waiting, light, the Messiah. For every individual, each of us in this room, it, it's an offer to move from darkness to light, the darkness of our life before Christ into the light of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, and as so many here in this room could even testify to this, When that happens, certain things happen. Certain things come to us. The light coming into our life is the love of God experienced. It's the joy of Christ flooding into our lives. It's the peace of God realized. It is the hope of God delivered to us. And you you might ask yourself the question at this point, if you're a professing follower of Christ, are these The hallmarks of my life are these the things that I'm enjoying, experiencing, love, joy, peace, hope. Are each of those mine in the measure that God intends for us to have them? I mean, this is Christmas in one phrase. After the darkness, light. If Christmas is anything, that's what it is. And for anyone here who's still in darkness, you don't have the things that I'm talking about. You don't have Christ. Therefore, you're not experiencing love, joy, peace, hope in the way that we're speaking of here. Still in the darkness, and therefore you could describe your life as feeling, I feel lost. I feel incomplete. I'm fearful of the future. I'm confused. I'm troubled by the circumstances of life. I'm hurting in some way, or, or, or maybe I'm just searching. I, I, I keep trying things. My life is fairly good, but I keep trying things, and I, but, but, but nothing's satisfying. I'm searching for something else. This season, uh, Christmas, it seems more than any other, affords us the opportunity to hear some good news about the light, to really focus on it and think about it, and all that he brings to us. 
And so this message is going to set us up to understand the light and all that radiates uh, from it. And we're going to start here in John 1. And uh, concerning the light, we want to know the truth about it. We want to know the truth about the light. And, and really, the light isn't an it, but a, but a him. The light is a, is a him. The light is Jesus Christ. Let's uh, pick it up now. We read the first few verses, uh, 6 uh, through 9. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is uh, John the Baptist, not the John who wrote the gospel, but John the Baptist. This is uh, Jesus' cousin. He's uh, uh, six months older than Jesus. He was sent by God as a prophet uh, to prepare the way for Jesus, to set the stage for him, to get people ready. Went down to the Jordan River. He uh, started preaching about the kingdom of God started baptizing people who were believing the message and really earnest for the coming of Jesus, waiting for it eagerly. They're in the darkness, but they're waiting for the light. So there was this man sent from God. His name was John, verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, verse 9, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. The, the stated purpose of, of why John came to preach about Jesus was that all might believe. We head into this Christmas uh, season with this message of good news, really no different at all from what John the Baptist preached, preaching the exact same thing. And, and my heart and my desire and, and that of our leaders and that of our pastors and that of this church is that all might believe. We should have that goal, don't you think? That everyone would believe this. I believe it. I want, I want you to believe it. I want you to believe it. I want my loved ones to believe it. I want my friends to believe it. I want everyone around me to believe this message. And we realize why this is so important because later in John chapter, six, John chapter 14, verse 6, we hear Jesus say, no one comes to the Father except through me. He's the light. He's the only light. He's the only way. No one's going to find their way to the light. <clears throat> no one's exiting the darkness except through Jesus Christ. And so many other paths and other, other teachers, other things may call themselves the light, but they aren't. People are in the darkness. They start chasing down this path, and they start going this way, and they try this thing out, and they all lead down dead ends to nowhere at all and deeper and deeper into the darkness. And yet these things pass themselves off as light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, in fact, says that even Satan disguises himself, or the NIV says masquerades himself as an angel of light. Satan himself comes with his own message and says, this is the light, this is the way. You can be enlightened, follow this path, do this thing. They're all dead ends. And only the simple message of Jesus Christ and his gospel is able to save us and move us from darkness to light. Know the truth about it. And then we need to get past the irony that's built into his coming into the world. There's an irony here. Verse 10 says that he was in the world, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him. He was the creator. 
He made everything. We saw that in the first few verses that we read. Nothing that was made was made by anyone else other than Jesus Christ. He's the creator. He was in the world, incarnate, came as a baby, lived among us. He actually made the world that he's now living in. Yet, the world did not know him. That's the irony. He made it. He made us. And we didn't recognize him. Verse 11 goes on to build on the irony. He came to his own. He went to Israel. He he was born in Bethlehem, just a few kilometers away from Jerusalem in the temple. He came to the very people who were called the chosen people of God, the people who were the keepers of the word of God, the Torah. He came to the people who built the temple where the Shekinah glory of God was resident, where the people of God worshiped. He came to the people that he had chosen to be a blessing to the nations. He came to those people. Notice what it says? Irony. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They didn't recognize him when he came. He was born in obscurity in this small village, a shepherding town. The only ones who witnessed the birth were the shepherds, and if you believe the movies, the talking animals. Those are the two (laughs) that witnessed his birth. And the little drummer boy. The shepherds, the talking animals, and the little drummer boy are the only ones that witnessed his birth. His parents carrying their newborn after, at the time of dedication, they head off to Jerusalem. They go to the temple and the crowd's bustling all around. Nobody notices. The creator's being carried through the temple courts. Oh, two people recognize him, Anna and Simeon who had been waiting and waiting and were so devout and been praying and God revealed to each of them that they would get to see God's salvation before they died. But God specially showed it to them. No one else even noticed. Came to his own. And his own people didn't even recognize him. He lived in Nazareth. He grew up there 30 years in Nazareth. Nobody knew. And then, and then even when he started his public ministry, even when he started teaching and people said, he teaches as one who has authority and not as our scribes. We've never heard a preacher like this one. They still didn't get it. He did miracle after miracle. He walked on water. He healed the lame. He restored sight to the blind. He fed the 5,000 over and over again. He does these incredible miracles in their presence and they see it happen. He came to his own. He came to Israel. He came to the believers. And they didn't recognize him. It's ironic, isn't it? And we might say, how could you be so stupid, Israel? How could you miss it? And we miss them all the time. 
We miss him all the time. We see his work. We see how he saves people. We see the blessing of what it is to follow him. We have all the things we're talking about. We have his love. We have his joy. We have his peace. We have hope where we didn't have it before. And still we miss him. The light, know the truth about it. Get past the irony and, and claim your right. Jesus came that we would claim our rights to be called a son or a daughter of the king. We live in a democracy. Democracies are established on the principle that people select their government and people have certain rights as citizens of the country. In Canada, we call it the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. You invoke your right to vote. If you are charged with an offense, you invoke your right to trial. When pressed against the wall, we're going to exercise our rights as citizens. And yet here we are as the followers of Christ. We have certain rights. Even as human beings, we have a right To enter the family of God, look at uh, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So because you're human, you're, you're created by God, so you're in the human family, and in a sense, you are in that way a child of God. But that doesn't mean that you have keys to the house. Because we've severed the relationship now, in order to get into that intimate, personal relationship with our God, something has to happen to reconcile the sin debt between us. You don't have the keys of the house. You're not even welcomed, really, in the family. And yet we have a right to be there. God gave us the right. You can claim it or not. The word right in the text, uh, refers to having the power or the authority to make a decision or to have control. And God extends an invitation to you to join the family, to experience the light, but you can decline the invitation. I don't know why you would. To decline the invitation is to remain outside in the dark. And to receive the light, you must simply Believe in his name. Receive him. It's really no more complicated than that. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe what you did. I believe what you said. And I'm going to receive you. And I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to be your child. And when you claim your right, notice next, you experience the rebirth. Verse 13 continues the thought, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, so not born in a physical way, nor of the will of man, not in a physical way, but born of God. Now, a couple chapters later, you'll know this if you're familiar with John's gospel at all, a couple chapters later, we meet a man named Nicodemus, and he was struggling with this very idea, this concept of rebirth, or um, as it's said in John 3, being born again. He couldn't grasp it. He couldn't understand how someone could, and he actually asked this question, how someone can re-enter their mother's womb and be born a second time. 
He was only thinking of physical birth. He didn't get the imagery. He didn't understand that what Jesus was really talking about was spiritual birth. Where the spirit is made alive, where the old spiritual life is over, where the the curse of death and judgment is all removed from me and all I have in front of me from now till all eternity is life in Jesus Christ. And Nicodemus was a very religious man, as faithful as they come among Jewish people, a leader amongst his people, knowledgeable in the scriptures beyond anything anyone in this room would know. He couldn't quite get it, that you could have sins forgiven and a relationship with the God who created you and who loves you. What happens at the moment of birth is it's like, it's like a light comes on. That's what Nicodemus couldn't understand. A light comes on. And every one of us needs to be born again, needs to experience the rebirth in order to have that light in our lives. And then with that light shining, you and I can see his glory. The light shines all around us and the light affects everything inside of us and outside of us, our perspective on everything. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Christmas, that's the nativity, that's the birth of Christ. And we have seen his glory. You see it because it's light. And the glory is the, is the radiating of who God is into our world. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John was older than Jesus, but only in the human sense. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Speaking of Jesus, he has made him God known to us. Jesus Christ, the only God, has made God known to us. It's the light shining in the darkness. Do you know him in that way? Is the light shining in you? Is it producing love, joy, peace, hope? Now that's, that's the first message. That's the introduction to the series for this entire month. And we want to now focus on, each of these messages is focusing on one of these things that, that light is radiating. Again, love, Joy, peace, and hope. Today we turn our attention to love. So turn your attention to the screen, and then we'll start our second message. Think about love. A knock at the door, and it's the delivery man with flowers. That flutter in your chest when you see their name pop up on your phone with a text. The smell of melted chocolate when the waiter brings around dessert on date night. Think about love, the whole family cuddled up by the fireplace, the warm weight of the baby asleep on your chest, the 200th lunch date with a lifelong friend still going strong. 
When we experience love in our lives, in any of its forms, we long for the moment to last. We revel in it and think to ourselves that this is the way life should be. Unconditional love isn't winding down or temporary or contingent on performance. You were made to long for love, a love unfailing and bottomless, a love stronger than death that looks on tempests and is never shaken. Love is brave. Love came down from heaven as a baby born in a barn to young, frightened parents at the outskirts of society. Love took human form as a humble carpenter who became homeless and spent his time with the lame, the sick, and the despised, only to himself be rejected and despised, and yet still go on loving those who hurt him. You were made to long for supernatural love, the kind that compelled Jesus to leave his glorious throne in heaven, to take on our human frailty, and to be okay with it all starting in a cow's feeding trough on a cold night in Galilee. That's the thing about love. It will take you places you never thought possible. This Christmas, through Jesus, we have love. It's the light of Jesus Christ that radiates that love out to us and into us and out from us. We turn our attention now to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. and We turn to the nativity story. And I think we would all agree the light radiates love. I think we would all agree that it is a good idea to tell the people that you love to tell them that you love them. Is that a good idea? It's a good idea to actually say the words. In fact, that's such a great idea that if maybe you haven't done that for a while, maybe that comes naturally to you, but maybe there's someone in your life that you love and you haven't actually said the words recently for us to resolve in this moment to say the words before the sun goes down tonight. To actually look at someone in the eye and to say to them, I love you, I love you, I love you. That's a great thing to do. But would you agree, having said that, and as important as that is, would you not agree that love doesn't have to be spoken to be evident? That the best kind of love is demonstrated, not spoken. In fact, you can say the words and not actually love someone. Often words are not spoken, but the love is obvious. And I set, say all of that because I'm setting up what's happening in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Because while this is our passage to help us understand the light radiating love, the fact of the matter is you're not going to see the word love even once in the text. But love is all over it. Love emanates and radiates from every verse, from all the interactions, from every word that's spoken. Love radiates from this at every turn. So let me read a few of these verses. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Um, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The light radiates love. Let's uh, start by looking at God's love uh, for Mary. Uh, She's uh, chosen by God. God certainly loves her. She's chosen by God. She's favored by God. Along the way, as she wrestles with the implications of what's going to happen to her, uh, she's encouraged by God. The angel Gabriel says to her, the Lord's with you. And the Lord's with her because he loves her. She's about to be asked to do something awesome for God. He picked her out of thousands and thousands of young women to do this. God's tenderness toward her communicates his love through Gabriel's words. When she shows some fear, he delivers comforting words to her. When she asks a question, she's treated gently. And her question is answered. There's no doubt when you read these verses that God loves Mary. Now, let me ask you a question, because this is not exclusive to just Mary. But do you know that God loves you? Have you come here today with a strong assurance, I know my God loves me? Now, it's not likely that anybody in this room is going to be asked to do anything as spectacular as Mary was asked to do. Let's just call this request to Mary a one-off. Is that fair? But he no less loves you. He no less wants to use you to let his love radiate through you to others. In fact, the whole thing with Mary, that she's going to carry the Son of God and give birth to him and raise him, and he's going to go and have his ministry, the whole thing about the incarnation of Jesus Christ is about God communicating his love toward us. So you should know by that singular act that God loves you. He sent Jesus for you. John, uh, 1 John 3, 1, write down that reference. 1 John 3, 1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God, and so we are. He loves us so much that he sent Jesus for us, and he's given us, again, back to John 1, the right to call ourselves the sons and daughters of the King. And if you're here today and you're going like, I hear the words that you're saying, but I don't feel loved. If you don't feel loved, there's only one other alternative. If you don't feel loved by God, then you will be stumbling around in the darkness trying to figure out how you can be loved. And you'll go down a lot of dark alleys. And every one of them, as I said earlier, will be a dead end. No one loves me, so I'll just eat more. Food is comforting. No one loves me, 
So I'll date this guy that I know I shouldn't date. I'll pursue relationships I know I shouldn't pursue out of the faint hope that that person will help me feel loved. No one loves me. So I'll drink, and while I'm drinking, at least I'll forget for a while that no one loves me, that God doesn't love me. Or I'll pop some pills, and that'll make it feel better. No one loves me, so I'll scroll through social media. I'll compare my life to everyone else's, thinking that somehow that'll help me feel loved, and actually at the end of it, what's really gonna happen is I feel worse. No one loves me. I'll post some selfies. I'll see how many likes I get. That somehow by that social media affirmation, I'll feel loved, but I know it won't work. There's not enough likes in the world to help me feel loved. No one loves me. Maybe I should just end it all. You should sense God's love for you. He's offering it. It's free. It just requires belief and receiving. And when you have it, then the selfies aren't important anymore. And the drinking loses its meaning. And the pursuing of relationships that aren't healthy will end. Because no circumstance of life can tear down or undermine the light of Jesus Christ radiating the love of God into me and my life. Ultimately, it's the only love that's truly satisfying. The only thing that moves us from darkness to light do you sense his love for you? God loved Mary, and it was mutual, of course. We could speak of Mary's love for God. I feel like that's so obvious in the text, picking up at verse uh, 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? This isn't doubt. It's not a lack of faith. It's humble inquiry. She's not saying, I don't think this can happen. She's saying, I think this can happen, but how's it going to happen? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age, this is John the Baptist's mom, has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, get this underline in your Bible if it isn't already. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That communicates Mary's love for God. She was favored by God. She was chosen to do this. And there's no doubt that as God surveyed the young women of the nation of Israel who could possibly carry the Son of God, that he was looking for someone who loved him and who worshipped him, whose life was devoted to him. A true Israelite who followed his word and his ways. 
Now, the caution on even saying that the way I just did is that our love for God does not save us. But it shows we've been saved. Our love for God does not save us. But it shows that we've been saved. In fact, 1 John 4.19, another reference to jot down. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Our ability to love him, our ability to love others comes because God first showed his love to us. God was the initiator. And the order of that is so essential to us to understand. God loved us first. And Mary loved God because he loved her first. And then her love showed up in that verse 38 declaration. Willing, eager, determination to surrender herself to whatever God had for her. She loved God that much. When you love God that much, it's like, no sacrifice is too great. Nothing you asked me to do is outside the realm of possibility. I'm willing to give everything for you. I love you that much, God. Which, by the way, for her, to love God that much, to hear what Gabriel had just told her, and then to say, whatever you want, I'm going to do it, what that meant for her, unplanned, unwed pregnancy. Today, that's not such a big deal. It's not the big deal it was a generation ago in this country, and it's not the big deal that it was in first century Israel. This meant, this meant shame. This meant, this meant walking around with people whispering and pointing at her. She slept with somebody. She slept with somebody. This meant her own betrothed, Joseph, asking the same question thinking in his own mind that she had fooled around with someone else. Understand the implications. When, when she says to God, I love you so much, I'll do whatever, she's throwing her whole reputation out to do what God asked her to do. Do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love him like that? Whatever you want me to do, God, I'm willing to sacrifice anything for you. My own reputation, my name, my life. Do you worship God like that? Do you give to God like that? Do you serve God? like that? Do you love him? God's love for Mary, Mary's love for God, asking us some, putting some very important questions in front of us, and then beyond all of that, how about God's love for Israel? Which really is a stand-in here for all people. It's a stand-in for the world. God's love for the world. We talk about Israel being the chosen people of God. I've already used that phrase in this message. They were chosen by God, but they weren't chosen by God to be the only people on the planet who were saved. This wasn't like some exclusive club that only Jewish people could be saved. God saved Israel so that through Israel, he could bring a Messiah that would save the world. God blessed Israel so that Israel could be a blessing to the nations. 
So the whole thing with Israel was always missional. It was always with the intention of saving the entire world. So when God says that he loves Israel, he's really saying, I love the world. And we, we see this in, in Mary's song, verse 46. This is the Magnificat. Mary's singing. She's praising God. It's a, it's a scriptive praise and worship to the Lord for what has just happened to her. My soul magnifies the Lord, she says. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This first part so personal. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Then it shifts here. His mercies for those who fear him. Okay, now we're on to mission. From generation to generation, he's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. You, you think you're so good. You think you're uh, able to find your own way. You think that by going down that road, you're gonna find the light. Stop being so full of yourself. Pride gets, gets us nowhere. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. I'm broken. I don't know the way. I need the light. I want the love of God. And he's filled the hungry with good things. That's awesome. The rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. That's, that's the covenant love of God. God's covenant faithfulness because he loved them, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring uh, forever. This is a rehearsing of God's covenant faithfulness and love to his people, his intention to fill them with good things, all because of his mercy toward them. And Mary praises him for it. For it. It's, it's after the darkness, after this long waiting, the light, this moment has come. Jesus has arrived. The Messiah is coming to save us. God loves the world. God loves us. God loves the people outside of these walls. This is the message that's being communicated in this moment. So let me ask, do you love people the way God loves people? Do you love people? Certain people. I know you're thinking it. Certain people. You know, some of you never get down into the west lobby or the north lobby of this building. You just come in the south doors and you hang out in the south lobby and you come in here and then you leave again. And so you haven't gone down the west lobby. And on the other side of this wall right here facing the center doors is this. Love God, love people. It's the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Our neighbor here happens to be the beer store <laughs> and the food bank and the homeless people that live in the field. Your neighbor is your family members and your friends and your coworkers and the people that live on your street. Whether you like them or not, those are your neighbors. I don't, I don't want this phrase to just be written on a wall. I want this to be written on our hearts. Love God, love people. Because that's what God did. 
So what does this look like? What, what, what is this love that we're talking about? Four things. Love is others-centric. So when I love someone else, I'm not doing it for what I can get out of it. I'm, I'm, I'm focused on you. I just want you to be loved. Number one best passage in the scripture to help us understand love, what is it? Number one best passage to understand love, who's got it? First Corinthians 13, I see you muttering it, no one wants to be wrong, so no one said it out loud. First Corinthians 13, love is patient, kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, not arrogant, not rude, doesn't insist on its own way, not irritable, not resentful, uh, not, uh, doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, rejoices with truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Awesome description of love. And when I look at that, I realize that it's 100% about the horizontal relationships that we have with one another. All of this, this whole description of love is, is about you and me and how we relate to one another. And then it becomes this kind of shocking, this shocking teaching in my life. Am I really others-centric? And then I build on that with this second one. Not only am I other-centric, but I'm also self-sacrificing. So as I'm focusing on you and loving you and loving people, I realize that I actually have to be sacrificing myself to radiate the love of God. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Okay, went to the cross, shed his blood, died on the cross, suffered horribly cruelly tortured for me. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It's got to cost us something. Other-centric, self-sacrificing, proof of our own salvation. This is where the stakes get super high. If you want to have an assurance that you're really a follower of Jesus Christ, if you want to know for certain you belong to him, the measure of that becomes how well we love people. That's crazy. Look what it says. This is Jesus teaching now in 1 John 2, 9 and 10. Whoever says he's in the light, whoever says he's a believer, we're talking about light here, whoever says he's a believer, whoever says they've received Christ, whoever identifies as a Christian, whoever says that and hates his brother. You say, well, hate's a strong word. It is a strong word. He says it to an extreme, but it isn't just about hatred. It's about I'm ambivalent toward you. I don't care about you. I don't have any time for you. I'm choosing to ignore you. I'm going to look the other way. Not just hate. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. You might think you're in the light. You might call yourself a Christian. If you don't love people, you, you're not standing on anything. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In him there is no cause for stumbling. You know you're saved. You're not stumbling around in the darkness anymore because the light is shining. Love is other-centric, it's self-sacrificing, it's proof of our own salvation, and four, 
Love is the gospel to those who don't yet know Jesus. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. And he's talking to believers here. So the love that's going on inside the church. By, notice this. This is where it becomes mission. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The number one most effective evangelism strategy that we have is not handing out little cards to people. It's not advertising on the web. It's not radio ads. It's not anything like that. It's not crusades. It's not events. The number one most evangelistic tool we have is that we love each other and people see it. It's convincing. You say you love God and I can see that. You say you love one another and I can see it. And you're reaching out beyond these walls to even love people who are unlovable. And people see that and they say, this Jesus must be real. The light radiating love, not just a telling of the gospel, but a showing of the gospel. Do you love people? Let that be on our hearts. You know, the great thing about living in a society, a culture today that is increasingly dark, and I think we would all say that, that morally we have drifted so far away from a Judeo-Christian ethic upon which this country was founded that we would just even say that that's, it's hardly recognizable today. And we would all look around and we would say, the, the world around us is getting increasingly dark. Wouldn't we say that? And here's the great news about that, and there is great news to that, that in the darkness, the light shines even brighter. But it's all gonna come down to this, Will we love God and will we love people? Let's pray. Father, you have um, shown us your love in such great abundance. It's hard for us even to quantify that, to be able to measure it in any way. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to save us. And Father, as, um, as a people who are professing faith in you and declaring that we believe and have received Christ, Father, we would want the love of God to be the defining characteristic of this church. Of all the things that we could be known for, Father, let it be this, that we love you and we love people. And God, I would pray for any who are in this room who are still in the darkness, still running down the wrong paths, still tripping over themselves and stumbling in the dark. God, I pray that right now, this morning, before they make another move, they would be committing their life to Jesus Christ. And I pray the light would be shining into their life right now and they would be experiencing love of God like they've never experienced it. 
that joy would be welling up inside of them and they would have a peace for the first time ever. And hope would be delivered. Hope of eternity with you forever. You can do this, Lord. You do it all the time. Pray in Jesus' name.